Hello, humans, hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950, speaking to you, not pre-recorded, but live from the bunker, <laughs> the bunker in Eden Prairie. How are you all? Happy Saturday to you. Happy snowy-ish Saturday to you here in Minnesota. Um, I'm thrilled to be back. We've got a great show. I have another live guest, and uh, if you want, you may even be able to call in and talk to him. Um, remember, our number is 952-946-6205. Um, and uh, after, other than our guest, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, a wonderful, wonderful piece in the Atlantic Magazine about um, remembrance. And... Um, Yep, and then I'll talk a little bit about a trip I took this week to uh, Canada. Okay, so our guest today, I'm thrilled to bring back Todd Dorman, who is a columnist, editorial writer, and blogger for the lovely Cedar Rapids Gazette. Todd was on the show about two years ago. We came in and talked a little bit about what's going on in Iowa politics. Um, And uh, Todd also has the distinction of being a parent of a child that went to my high school, where I graduated from in Cedar Rapids, Linmar High School. Todd Dorman, welcome back to AM250. How are you? Great. It's glad, actually AM950. I just shorted us. <laughs> I'm thrilled <laughs> to have you here. Todd, um, you, uh, you are a, well, I'm going to characterize it. And you tell me if I've got it wrong. A liberal writer in a sea of red down in Iowa. Um, and tell me, give me a read, if you could, of what is the political landscape um, in Iowa right now? Well, uh, you know, while the, while the Democrats did pretty well nationally in Iowa, uh, we basically got a lot redder. Uh, uh, the only statewide race that Democrats won was the state auditor contest. We we lost the governor's race. We uh, Democrats lost uh, the longest-serving attorney general in in, in the United States, uh, in Tom Miller. Our longtime treasurer was defeated, uh, who's Democrat. Uh, the, the legislature got redder. The Iowa Senate now has a 34-16 supermajority for Republicans, which means Democrats can't even stop any of the governor's uh, nominees for various commissions and, and offices. So, yeah, it's uh, uh, Iowa and Florida, basically, were the main states that turned much redder on election night. And, and so, yeah, the Iowa Democratic Party is kind of in disarray. And then they lost the caucuses. And <laughs> so it's been sort of a one-two punch in the last month for Democrats in Iowa. So I bet a little bit of dejection going on for the Dems down in Iowa after all yeah, of that. A lot of debate over where to go and what to do next and how to overhaul the party. And I mean, it wasn't that long ago that they were very competitive, uh, even in some rural areas. I mean, they used to win some of the old industrial towns and cities and and county seat communities and things like that. And they, they have just basically disappeared from anywhere outside of the main metro areas. How have... Well, and and when you talk the main metro areas, you're essentially talking what Des Moines, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids. Yeah, it's uh, like <laughs> the gubernatorial candidate for the Democrats, Deidre Dejere, won Polk, Story, Johnson, and Lynn 
which is Ames, College Town, Iowa right. State University. Right. The capital city is in Polk County, Des Moines, and then Iowa City is in Johnson County, and Cedar Rapids is in Lynn County. And she's she is a black. She was a black. She's still black, but she was a black candidate um, for yeah, governor in who, Iowa, who didn't get nearly the amount of crucial donor support, little support from the state Democratic Party. And she was a strong candidate. The problem is in the final polls before Election Day, I mean, she was down 19 points to Kim Reynolds, the Republican, but also only 35 percent of those polled had even heard of her. So not having the resources to get known was a big impediment to her campaign. No name recognition. Okay. well, so give me your take, if you could. How has how have the Republicans been able to engineer this? I mean, Todd, we're only what is this? Twenty twenty two. We're 13 years from when the Iowa Supreme Court unanimously declared that um, same-sex couples had the right to marry constitutionally in Iowa. We have, you know, and 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 at that time it was a much more uh, progressive atmosphere in the state. How, in the span of 13 years, did this all happen, where the state just turned so incredibly more red? Well, and I think we've seen this in other parts of the country. I mean, uh, at some point, Iowa has a large segment of of white, working-class, non-college-educated voters who basically went lock, stock, and barrel for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, You know, voting has turned less, you know, is, is less about issues now and more about sort of cultural identity and, uh, you know, disdain for, for you know, the Democratic Party in rural areas. And I think that's been, you know, the main story is that those voters that maybe used to be part of a union, you know, in a manufacturing town or used to be more, you know, the Democrats had a better, more appeal to them. That's just totally shifted. It's, it's you know, it's religion, it's culture, it's uh, all of those things that have become more important in the way people vote. I mean, I've actually compared it to, you know, voting has almost become like like your favorite sports team. It's part of your sort of identity. And, you know, you, you can't convince a, a cyclone to become a Hawkeye. You can't convince some of these folks who are Republicans to vote Democratic. Right. Well, and, and Kim Reynolds, the, the governor, uh, the Republican governor who was reelected resoundingly for four years, I mean, she did cap, you know, uh, do her best to um, to uh, drum up and stir up cultural issues. I mean, she had an she literally had an ad on TV about transgender kids. Do I have that right? Yeah, she her last ad, even though she was up 19 points, she decided to use her last ad to sort of part of it was that she said in Iowa, you know, we know the difference between boys and girls. That was one of the lines in, in the ad. And she had been hammering on that theme as part of a kind of a parental choice argument. And, uh, and, and you know, they use the local school district here, Linmar, as, as sort of the, the, uh, the bad example of, of, you know, this parents not having the right to know what's going on with their kids at school. And she hammered that. U.S. Representative uh, Ashley Henson hammered that theme. Ashley Henson has kids in the Linmar district. Uh, and so, yeah, they they targeted transgender kids for political gain. OK, yeah. <laughs> well, well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, 
Uh, Todd, I want to talk with you about what's going on at the school board and you know, and at Linmar um, because I think it's critical. And you know I recently elected to my local school board, so being able to talk about my old school, my old school district is kind of important to me. Okay? All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in a second. Listeners, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950. If you like what you hear and you want to give Todd a call, talk to him about what's going on in Iowa, 952-946-6205. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. AM 950, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Uh, before we took our break, we were speaking with and will continue to speak with Todd Dorman, who's a columnist, editorial writer, and blogger for the Cedar Rapids Gazette down in Cedar Rapids. Todd, I want to start talking about this Linmar High School, or excuse me, this Linmar School District in a second. But before I do that, I did have one more question for you about what's going on in the political landscape in Iowa statewide. Is you know, I've been hearing because I, I I read your stuff regularly, and I've got other feeders from Iowa because I'm still an Iowan at heart. Um, Minnesotans, don't hold that against me, please. Um, I uh, um, and I've seen a few inklings of things about the word is that Republicans want to remove LGBTQ plus protections from Iowa law on the idea that they don't need any special protection. They don't need any kind of special stuff. Is is there a movement afoot for that to happen? Well, there's there have been bills filed the last couple of years that would remove uh, gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Code. Uh, sexual orientation and gender identity were added in 2007 when the right. Democrats controlled both houses of the legislature and, and we had Governor Chet Culver, who's a Democrat, uh, so, I mean, with all of the rhetoric that's been aimed at these transgender, uh, support policies in public schools, I mean, one way they could get at that is to basically remove gender identity from the code. And therefore, you know, they could tell schools that you don't have to have these support policies because you can go ahead and discriminate if you want. Uh, so far those haven't gone anywhere. The business community in Iowa has been strongly against that legislation because of course they they want to recruit businesses and employees from out of state they want to have events here like ncaa championship tournaments and and and, you know things like that and so they they fear that such a move would make iowa into sort of a pariah state for business and activities and investment so they fought hard against that but you know now that the legislature is redder and you know, it 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 remains to be seen whether they're going to make a run at that. I have no doubt that a bill will be filed. It's just a matter of how far it goes. And, you know, we, we saw the business community sort of shrink back when they passed the the ban on allow. They, they no longer we no longer allow transgender girls and women to participate in girls and women's sports in Iowa. Right. And I kind of expected the, the business community to also oppose that. But they. They sort of remain silent, so we'll we'll see if yeah. you know we'll we'll see what what happens and if they oppose this idea of removing gender identity. 
Well, in Todd, just for what it's worth, I mean, the business community in 16 other states also didn't do much because we now have 16, I think it's 17 states where trans kids, particularly trans girls, can't participate in sports from kindergarten all the way through state university senior year. Okay, thank you. Well, let's talk about Linmar uh, School District, okay? It's a school district. uh, It's one of the largest school districts in the state of, of Iowa. It has, um, just for uh, our listeners here, 7,600 students. Um, it does have a 95% graduation rate, which so means it's fairly effective at educating its students or at least graduating them. Um, the high school that I graduated from has nearly 2,200 students now. When Todd, I've got to tell you, when I graduated from Linmar High School in 1975, there were 600 students at that school. <laughs> My class had 100 and, 155 or 60 kids in it. Um, and interestingly, Todd, uh, and, and maybe you're well aware of this, but the school district is only 81% white. I mean, you've got nearly 20% uh, representation by children of skin colors other than the white skin color. Tell us what's going on at Linmar. I mean, the governor, we've already talked about what this last summer. And, and Todd, hold on. Let me interrupt. Parenthetically, just let me throw in, I reached out to you more to to be on the show in part because you wrote this stunningly supportive column of transgender humans, but particularly transgender kids in Iowa. And I want to thank you for that, Todd. I mean, that's, you know, I know you're a professional and I know, you know, you, 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 you know, you, you call it how you see it. But I just want to tell you, I thank you for that allyship. It was incredibly important for those words to show up in Iowa. So. Thank you. Yeah, I, too few people are standing up for these kids, and so I just feel it's important, especially since it's and it's you know my home, my home school district, and it's just it's painful to watch what's what's transpired. Well, and let's talk about Linmar. So the governor, do I have this right? Over the summer, she went to Linmar to have a meeting with a select group of parents. The meeting was closed to the press, and the, but the topic with those parents was about – was it primarily about transgender kids in the school district? Yeah, it was about the policy that Linmar has adopted. And I mean, you know, last year, last fall uh, – well, Linmar, to back up a little bit, Linmar had, has been, you know, practicing supportive policies for a long time. And last fall, they decided to make sure, in accordance with state and federal law, they wanted to put these policies that they'd been following and writing in a single document. These are support, policy supportive, supportive policies for right. trans, trans and non-binary kids, right? Right. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, and so they approved that. And, of course, people, you know, opposed it. And some people were angry about it. And the main fighting point in those policies was that if a student asks – for a gender a gender support policy, uh, it would be up to them whether the school they allow the school district to inform their parents or not, because you know kids know their home life better than right. people in the in the school administration, and so some of them you know would fear disclosure of that. Well, that got turned into by politicians such as the governor and the congresswoman here into you know that the 
that the uh, somehow the school district is encouraging kids to change their gender, and then they're not telling parents about it, and the parents have a right to know, and so it, it turned into a big political issue that you know was used throughout the the campaign. Uh, you know, our our congresswoman said kids don't belong to government; they belong to their parents, which. I never thought of my own kids as belongings, but I guess that's that's her uh, that's her take on it. So, yeah, the policy basically became a symbol on the political right of, you know, everything that's wrong with public schools and and how we need to take state money and provide private school vouchers so that parents can pull their kids out of these awful liberal indoctrination centers and and all of that stuff. So a lot of a lot of baggage got heaped onto what basically was a local policy to just make sure that transgender kids were not harassed and bullied in school, which I I, I can't understand why that's not an acceptable goal, but apparently on the right it's 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 not. Well, and, and really what the kids are doing is they're, you know, with that policy, they're going to the educators, they're going to the administration and saying, listen, I'm transgender or I'm, I'm you know, non-binary. I, I've come to realize this about me. And in school, I please use pronouns that are, you know, for Ellie Kruger to be she and her pronouns. And please use my, the name that I, I've adopted as part of my transitioning. And, and please don't let my parents know about this because my parents are unaccepting and then I will suffer horrible consequences at home if, if they know. And the school is like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll be supportive of you. I mean, I have that right about generally what this is all about. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And, you know, a lawsuit was filed by a group of parents. Uh, you know, some of them argued that, you know, their, their children might get gender support policies uh, and they wouldn't know about it. And some uh, sued on First Amendment grounds, basically saying, you're violating my kids' First Amendment if you make them, you know, use pronouns that, that they don't believe in. So that's that's where that at. And I think, you know, the, the worst part about this is that the basically the very clear but unspoken argument that's behind a lot of this stuff is that basically transgender isn't real. It's not a real thing. Right. It's right. these kids are going through a phase, uh, you know, it, and, and I don't, you know, that's, that's not their decision to make. I mean, the school district is trying to be supportive. So at least when, when kids are in school, you know, they can, they can live their authentic lives and not fear harassment, but you know, it, it's just, and it's not a majority. I mean, it's of parents. It's a, it's a very loud minority that's angry about this. And I mean, that's, you know, usually how it goes. I think most of the parents I talk to are, you know, think these, think, think kids should be supported in school regardless of their, of their situation. So. Well, in the Linmar School District, I mean, you've got a lot of, you know, educated, well-educated parents in that district. A lot of people, you know, earning very good uh, you know, family incomes. And I mean, it is a, it's a, you know, in many respects, it's a pretty progressive uh, school district compared to other school districts in Iowa. Todd, you know, um, uh, but the election, there were some school board members that, that were up for election this time around in November, right? And were they? No, not, not, not this year. The school board elections are in odd numbered years, but uh, last year there were two candidates who ran on this issue uh one one was 
victorious and one lost. Ah, okay, okay, all right. So, so you've got at least one school board member who is pushing um, discriminatory uh, policies towards transgender and non-binary kids. And, and he was the only school board member that was invited to the governor's closed door <laughs> meeting. Oh my gosh, what a coincidence! Yeah, so. <laughs> no other parents. No school administration. I mean, the governor is not interested in hearing from anybody on the other side of the issue. She wanted to sort of huddle with the people that oppose the support policy. And there were Republican legislative candidates there. Congresswoman Henson was there. Uh, and so they that, that's what they did. And they, they didn't want anybody to know about it. But luckily, a intrepid TV reporter from Cedar Rapids figured it out and provided coverage and staked so, out staked the outside they were outside yeah. but they couldn't go in they wouldn't let them in even though you've got a public the public meeting on public it was on school grounds on public grounds you know right so well uh, no it was actually it was actually in a there's a i think it was held in a a room in a building on a in a in a city park oh. in marion it's also a storm shelter so oh. it was kind of in a a bunker. Oh, in a bunker. Okay, I, <laughs> something like that. I thought it was on a build out building on the Linmar grounds. Okay, um, you know, and and uh, Todd, um, and we've got just a couple more minutes here. But you know, I mean, you're familiar with what happened in South Dakota in 2016. You know, the legislature in South Dakota passed anti-trans bills to ban trans people from using public bathrooms and restrooms. You know, and Dennis Dugard, who was the governor at that time, who had never met a transgender person, agreed that he would meet with three transgender people the night before he was to sign the bill. He sat with them for two hours having, you know, tea and coffee and getting to know them. And you you understand, I mean, the next day, Dennis Dugard said, I'm not going to sign the bill. These are humans. You know, and that's really what's going on. I mean, people don't get to know transgender people. They're afraid to know to get to know us. And 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 then they have all these misconceptions about things. And it's just well. And and Todd, not that this is all about me, but I mean, up in my school district, which is about fifteen hundred students larger than Linmar. okay, with a little bit lower a graduation rate um, and uh, but about about the same percentage of white versus other skin color students. Um, my school district, you know, in a in a purplish to red county, elected me, <laughs> you know, to its school board. And so, and, you know, I'm still kind of scratching my head about how that happened, but I, I will tell you this. You know, I went out and I, I knocked on somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 doors, and people got to know that I like real person, you know, and kind of funny mm-hmm. and you know, at times, and, and I, I'm, I'm there on an agenda of compassion for all humans, not just essentially, not just, you know, one, you know, narrow issue, so. Yeah, that not only do they not talk to transgender kids who are affected, I don't think they talk to, you know, other kids. I mean, my <clears throat> my daughter, who's a senior at Linmar, I mean, for, for her and her peers, and it, this is this is not, a big deal. I mean, they respect and are kind to people. I mean, I, I, it's, it's amazing how, you know, watching my kids and their friends and, and just, you know, how much better and more aware they are than when I was a kid growing up in small town, Iowa. I mean, they just, they just get it. I mean, the kids get it. They do. And that's the hope for the future is that all of these people that, you know, 
can't stand to, you know, can't stand anything that makes them the least bit uncomfortable when it's not really about them. It's about the rights of other people and, and, and our kids get it. And so I, I'm heartened by that at least. So the last question I have for you is on this line, which is what's I, what are the, you know, the the Republicans doing in Iowa to the future of the state? I mean, is it not causing young people? I mean, I don't know. Maybe your daughter wants to stay in Iowa, but I, but I, I know anecdotally from other Iowans that their children, as soon as they get out of college or high school, they want to leave the state because of the intolerance there uh, by, you know, the people in power. It is. It's, it's going to drive <clears throat> in the long run. It's going to drive people out. I mean, we've always had a brain drain. We've always had, a, you know, a pretty good percentage of college graduates leave the state. I mean, you know, it's and that's just, you know, you go to live somewhere else. That's just, you know, part of growing up sometimes is you want to go somewhere new and that's understandable. But I mean, we had a story uh, a few months ago where in the Gazette, we're talking to LGBTQ people who are leaving teachers, others who are just decided they, they don't feel safe here. They don't feel like this is a place where they can work, especially as educators. When you've, when you've got people accusing them of all sorts of ridiculous things. Uh, I know my older daughter who is in college, she's interested in politics and is working in politics. She, she kind of wants to stay and fight. I'm not, I'm not sure how long that will last, but uh, she does. And there are other people that feel that way also, but yeah, these, all of these policies and, you know, we're, we're getting ready to probably place severe restrictions on abortion. I mean, we're doing, we're, you know, we, we've already passed a bill that makes it difficult for teachers to teach the reality of systemic racism and, 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 and real history because that makes people uncomfortable. I mean, we're just, we're really, I mean, we're just really closing our minds in the state. And, and like you say, 13 years ago, we not only had, you know, we had the marriage ruling, uh, Democrats were in control of the state house Barack Obama won the caucuses. I mean, there was a point where it's like, wow, you know, I was looking pretty progressive. And I think a lot of people moved here about that at that point. Yep. And now they're like, this was a bait and switch. <laughs> this is we're having movers remorse. And so, I mean, it's they're, it's horrible. They're not doing they're not doing the state any good. It, Todd, it's just I, it's sad. It really is. It just is so incredibly sad. Well, Tad, Todd, we've got to go. Um, I really appreciate you coming back to be on the radio show. And maybe in a couple more years, assuming I'm still around, maybe we'll have you back and we can talk about maybe how I was doing then. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, Todd, thanks so very much for being LE 2.0 Radio. Listeners, we've been speaking with Todd Dorman, who's a columnist, editorial writer, and blogger for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Uh, When we come back from from the next break, I'm going to talk with you about, um, about remembrance yet again. Uh, So we'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back on AM 950. Um, Todd Dorman, you know, he's got his finger on his pulse on the pulse down in Iowa. It is amazing. The difference in the way the world is, you know, the Iowa border is, what, 
uh, from the Twin Cities, the Iowa border is about 90, 95 miles. And it's an amazing black and white difference between how two states see the world, deal with the world, deal with humans who are vulnerable. And uh, that's why I'm here. That's why I live in Minnesota. It really is. Okay, listen. Um, last week I had James Curry on, who was the, the, uh, one of the two founders of the nonprofit um, Building, Reconcilia- Building Remembrance for Reconciliation. And he talked about you know, some of the, the, what had happened in Hastings with, you know, with a black church being burned down and, and black families essentially being run out of town. And just simply, merely by coincidence, I, I, not by coincidence, but I, I flew to Victoria, British Columbia this week to go speak. And I'll talk about that in the, at the end of the show. But just by coincidence, I had the Atlantic magazine, which you, I think you've heard me say, the Atlantic magazine is one of the best magazines in the whole world. Okay. And their feature piece um, is a piece about um, Germany. And remembering the Holocaust. And in a piece uh, written by Clint Smith, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic, a piece titled Monuments to the Unthinkable, and the subtitle of that is America Still Can't Figure Out How to Memorialize the Sins of Our History. What can we learn from Germany? And this piece is about how Germany has remembered and commemorated in some ways and atoned uh, for the sins of the Holocaust, and let me just um, let me just give you a little bit as this article relates. But let me just give you a little bit a little bit about how the Holocaust began and ended. Originally, the the plan the Nazi plan was simply to push Jews out of Germany, to make life so restrictive for them that they would leave. Now, we just got done talking to Todd Dorman about parallels with transgender people. Just put a pin in that and just think about that, kind of bounce back to that as I give you this story here. But, and so, so the, the, all, the, all the Nazis wanted to do originally was to have all Jews, Jewish people, leave Germany, okay? And they passed these series of laws restricting them. And then that led up to, that was in the mid to late 30s, and that led up literally until November 8th and 9th of 1938, the night of broken glass, Kristallnacht, uh, when a, a thousand, one thousand Jewish synagogues were burned to the ground, thirty thousand Jewish males were arrested and placed in concentration camps. They went to Dachau and Buchenwald. They had to they had to expand Dachau and Buchenwald because of the influx, and that began. So Kristallnacht really, really began the. The terrorization, not just the passage of, of laws, but the terrorization of Jewish people. And then the war began in September of 1939. And then suddenly, suddenly, um, in Blitzkrieg fashion, Germany is controlling many countries with large Jewish populations. For example, when Germany overran Poland, it had nearly 3 million Jews. Hungary had 300,000 Jewish people. Lithuania had 150,000 people. And in January of nine, so suddenly now Germany has all of these Jewish people under its control. And in January of 1942, so this is a year after the U.S. enters World War II, January 42, Nazi leaders gathered at the Wannsee mansion on Lake Wannsee in Berlin. 
where they met and created what has been called the final solution. It's a 15-page plan um, with the goal of which the goal ultimately murdered six million people, many millions of Jews, but other unacceptable humans to the Nazis, gays, persons with disabilities, Roma people. So that's that's what goes on. Germany has a production system to literally kill millions of people. And then the war ends. And Russian and, liber- and U.S. soldiers liberate uh, Dachau and Auschwitz and many other concentration camps. And what they came to find is that many of those concentration camps were next to or in the midst of towns. So, for example, the town of Dachau. U.S. soldiers liberated Dachau. And they noted that in Dachau City, da- Dachau town next to the concentration camp, you would never know that that – Tens of thousands of humans had been murdered and were starving to death. You would just never know it because life was just going on normally in Dachau. I mean, the U.S. soldiers created the first, actually, the first memorial to um, to the Holocaust because they made uh, at uh, this would be at Buchenwald. Uh, they made the residents who are in their little town in Buchenwald where, you know, they, you know, acting as if nothing was going on next door. They made residents of Buchenwald go into, go into Buchenwald, into the concentration camp, and bury 5,000 bodies. Okay? That's considered the first memorial to the Holocaust, where those bodies are buried. And then the question became, do you memorialize what Germany did? I mean, do you honor the Jews and do you, do you memorialize? And as Clint Smith writes in his piece, for two decades after World War II, Germans didn't speak about the Holocaust. Of course, the shame and the penance, but they never spoke about it. And what happened beginning in the mid-60s is that children, children of parents who lived through Nazi Germany, the children started asking questions about what their parents and grandparents did during World War II. And, and this fell a lot to, to non-Jewish, non-Jewish Germans to start talking about the Holocaust. I mean, uh, that you know, there are 80 million Jew, uh, Germans right now, and out of 80 million, only 120,000 are Jewish. So the odds are, if you live in Germany, you're not even going to know somebody who is Jewish. And private citizens came forward with the idea to let ordinary Germans know what their grandfathers, their fathers' grandfathers, and grandmothers had allowed to happen. And Smith writes about this thing called the Solpenstein, Solperstein, okay, blocks which are, that's German for stumbling block. So, Soperstein is German for stumbling block. And what these are are 10 by 10 square brass plates placed outside the homes of people in Berlin and other European cities um, with the names and dates of the people, the Jewish people who lived in those homes, the names of them, the dates that they were born, and the dates, the dates they were taken from their homes and the dates they were murdered. 
These are small blocks placed on the sidewalk, cobblestone block, stone sidewalks, placed outside these houses so that people who walk by can remember and know what Germany had done to humans. The project began in 1996 by German artist Gunther Demning. Now there are more than 75,000 Solpersteins. I think the number is actually closer to 100,000. In 26 countries across Europe, they're not allowed in Munich. Um, the Munich only allows plaques outside the homes. Some Jewish people object to the Solpersteins because they're blocks that you could step on, and of course the symbolism there. On the other hand, if they make you trip, if you're German, it's a reminder of what your country did. Okay? Now, there were, as I said, no memorials in the 40s or the 50s. Private citizens came forward. Eventually, the government, I mean, had to be petitioned for like eight years to create a national memorial, which eventually was built in 2005. Now, 2005, we are talking, you know, Nearly, what, what is that, 60 years after the war, 2005, the, the, it's titled The Memorial to, to the Murdered Jews of Europe. And it's 200,000 square feet of rows of blocks, 2,711 concrete blocks in downtown Berlin, right next to the Reichstag. Now, the question that Clint Smith writes about is, what do we do in the U.S.? How do we do what how do we how do we atone in the US? How do we remember in the US about what we have done? What we did to black people sold into slavery or killed or murdered or just forced to create all white towns. Now that goes back to what James Curry talked about Hastings last week. You know, uh um uh uh, Clint Smith writes, he's from, he's from New Orleans. If they put Solpersteins in New Orleans, the city streets would be totally covered with them because of the number of black humans who were sold in New Orleans into slavery. Brian Stevenson um, has the National Memorial for Justice and Peace about lynching in, in um, Montgomery. Okay, But we, don't, we haven't even begun, haven't even begun our process of Solpersteins, or whatever else we want to call it in our country. And until we do that, until we do that, we will continue to make the same mistakes. We will. Now we're back to trans kids and what we're doing to them. All right, we've got to take a break, and then we'll be back. I'll give you my last roundup for the day. Making you think. Listen to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. On AM 950, if you want to call, you're going to have one last chance, 952-946-6205. We'll be back in a sec. And we're back. LA 2.0 and AM 950. Uh, you know what? I've got like three minutes. That's it. <laughs> to talk about my work as an idealist. All right. I, 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 I flew <laughs> to Victoria, British Columbia this week to speak. Um, let me just tell you, uh, Delta, no direct flights. So you got to go to Vancouver. 
it was a 15-hour day to get there because I had a six-hour layover in Vancouver. There were no earlier flights. And it was a 12-hour day coming back. Let me just tell you, I don't know how often I want to fly to Vancouver, to Victoria. But let me also tell you, it's a beautiful city, stunningly beautiful. And uh, Minnesotans just need to report to you, temperature there about 20 degrees warmer. I saw flowers, like a lot of flowers. I saw trees budding, like, you know, like what's the thing we're, we're going to see in maybe April, maybe. They were starting to bud. They had little things on the on, – <laughs> so I'm just telling you. I spoke to um, 100-plus government employees, uh, many of them from the state ombudsperson's office. Ombuds people are people who interact between people who have issues with the government. And, um, and I've got to just tell you, I gave gray area thinking. I did my gray area thinking talk. And I've just got to tell you, um, again, not that I'm anybody great, but people really like that talk. There were tears in the audience because people were touched by some things that other people said, some hugging. I had some people come up to me to tell me how the talk had touched them. I had one person come up and say he wanted to see a picture of my dog because <laughs> I had talked about Jack. Um, and I'm reminded as this idealist who is right now overloaded. I've got my day job to pay the bills. Takes me to Victoria. I've got the school board now. I've got two boards, three boards that I'm on in addition to that. And I've got to tell you, I mean, this is not probably what normal people do as they get older. They unload rather than load up. But I'm here to tell you this, okay? It's what I was put on this earth to do. All of this work. It was. Everything that I've done has led up to this. Lawyer, becoming a lawyer, understanding about how the law works, running a business, becoming somebody who helps people heal, and be able to push people to think differently and change their perspective. So... All right, well, stay tuned. I'll give you more as we go along, of course. Um, next week, we have a great show. I've got an idealist that I have been wanting to have on my show for a long time. Between now and next week, when you hear my voice, okay, um, do me a favor. Go out and do an act of kindness to make the world better. Can you do that for me, please? I think it'd be good. All right, talk to you next week. Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, out and over. Have a great weekend. Bye.